millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. We did it. Out of the Faustian aristocratic age fire and into pure, straight-up, uncut romanticism by way of lyrical ballads, the joint production of William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Did lyrical ballads break new ground? No. Did it shatter the poetic norms of British poetry all at once, brushing stuffy, aristocratic, heroic couplet satires into the dustbin of history? No. Did it incite a literary revolution, breaking down the barriers for entry into the domain of poetry for the common British subject? No. But it still was a major watershed production in the history of poetry in English. And though we deflate some expectations on this preliminary background episode on the historical context of the book, we do still recognize that Wordsworth and Coleridge made a major intervention on the function and purpose of poetry. The Cannonball is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and we've added a couple of great new shows to the network, like Pontifax, a lighthearted, only slightly blasphemous papal history podcast that ranks the popes from Peter to Francis. And launching this month is Revolution One, a podcast examination of the Tunisian uprising and the Arab Spring that followed. If you're online, check us out at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com, find us on Facebook at The Cannonball Podcast, and on Twitter at CannonballPod. Welcome to The Cannibal, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. And uh, Daniel, are you ready tonight to talk about Wordsworth and Coleridge's Magic Summer? <laughs> I, uh, I'm i ready to, uh, in the tradition of Brideshead Revisited, 
<laughs> I want to know about a rich Englishman's magical time that he had. Um, uh, although I don't know, were they rich guys? I'm going to find out. For, no, for the first time no, on they this were podcast. not. <laughs> they okay, were great. Not. All right, even better. Um, <laughs> sorry, we're being a little facetious about this. Uh, we're taking on the the lyrical ballads. Um, our, our plan is to, uh, the the lyrical ballads, which were written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Williams Word, William Wordsworth. Excuse me. In, in case you're, you're sort of unfamiliar with the project. This is a watershed volume. It's not, it's, it's, you know, I think generally approached or taught in undergrad is kind of like the quintessential romantic volume of poetry or the volume of poetry that kicked off the romantic era. It's, it's not quite that. When you contextualize it and put it into context, mm-hmm. it's not quite that. But it's a watershed volume. It, it solidified certain things that were in the air and brought to fruition a kind of poetic mode that, you know, I want to argue is still with us to this day. Uh, Wordsworth mm-hmm. and Coleridge worked on it together. Um, over the course of like mostly a summer is how it kind of germinated. But um, they, they had poems that they had been both working on separately. They started collaborating on a couple of poems. They started changing things around and working with each other. And the idea was to produce this volume of their writings anonymously um, to sort of, I guess make their mark or get some stuff out there. So it, it's a watershed volume. Um, in Bloom's book, he just takes on Wordsworth sort of singularly and looks at his poem, The Ruined Cottage. But we thought, uh, for the sake of context, for the sake of, I guess, you know, branching out a little bit for, for the sake of, you know, one of those major texts in the canon, we, we take on the lyrical ballads, uh, as fully as possible in a couple of different ways. Um, mm-hmm. lyrical ballads was published in two editions originally. The first was 1798 and the second was 1800. And they're, they're very different editions. Uh, we figured what we could do is first start off with historical background and context for the period uh, and for the book itself. We, we just finished up Goethe, which, you know, according to Bloom's schema is the end of the aristocratic age. And we're getting into what he calls the democratic age. Um, the, this is closely aligned with romanticism just whatever you want to call romanticism. It's closely aligned with <laughs> that kind of broad general 19th century project. So uh, we figured since we're moving into this other era, it would behoove us to do some general background information anyway. So I guess that's my rambly intro to how we're trying to approach the lyrical ballads. We're, we're going to talk about the lyrical ballads. We're going to talk about the time period. We're going to mostly focus on England, but we might talk a little bit more about the continent because this is also incorporating the French Revolution and reactions to the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Daniel... What the hell was England doing <laughs> before the French Revolution? Yes, well, that is uh hey, that's that's a mouthful, you know. We'll 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 take a look at it. Um I think I think it is fascinating though that the and I guess kind of convenient <laughs> that the dividing line between the aristocratic age and the uh the democratic age as Bloom defines them as the, you know, the French Revolution. Um 
because of course that's the the famous one about sans culotte chopping the heads off of aristocrats you right. know, that's a very concrete kind of example of a passing of the torch but of course as always the story is a lot more complicated and especially in the case of great britain uh especially in the case of you know england you know i'll i'll use the term great britain and by that i mean kind of the 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 peoples and political entities that exist on the British Isles, right? So right. Uh, England, Scotland, and Ireland, which will actually come up that why I sort of talk about those not necessarily as one unit. <laughs> it's because in, it's in this time that that, that well, the, 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 the entity and the, the term United Kingdom is created. Right. Um, but before the French Revolution, the 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 kind of english uh or i guess we can at this point we can call it british there there was right. a british empire right so the scotland had been uh more or less united with england in a what's called a personal union under a monarchy which is basically one person inherited the throne of both of these kingdoms they're not necessarily the same state they are it's just that each one has the same person as their monarch which is why you get fun stuff like uh james the second of england being james the sixth right of, uh, scotland um but in 1707 so about you know you know more or less a century before our boys uh wordsworth and coleridge uh got their book out there was a the act there was the uh Union of Scotland and England into one unitary monarchy, which created the Kingdom of Great Britain. And then it's after that you can talk about British history, the British army, the British Empire. Right. Uh, because that was a term used to reflect that it was a project jointly of these national entities, England and Scotland. Well, England, Scotland, and Wales. Uh, Wales is still thought of as a national entity and should be. Uh, but not to get to our Marty in the weeds. Um, but toward, you know, over the, the course of the 18th century, the, the, the British Empire and its ruling class had a kind of roller coaster of, uh, fortunes, really. The, it's where you saw the, the massive expansion of British interests and control in the, East in South Asia, for instance, um, this was kind of the beginning of what was called the Raj, the British Empire in India, which at this point was actually a and it's always crazy to think about this. This was a private corporate enterprise at this point. Mm -hmm. um, the East India Company was a literal like joint stock company. You could buy shares in the company that had armies and was conquering people in India. Um, a very odd situation to think about, but you know, who knows where capitalism will take us in the next century. We might get back there. Um, uh, we, we kind of did in the Iraq <laughs> war. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Um, well, Hey, you know, and, uh, uh, if you have shares in Coca-Cola, you know, they, they hired mercenaries to murder union organizers in Colombia. Well, yeah. So, you know, you're, you're already on board. Um, but, oh, uh, <laughs> but, uh, to get us back on track, the, of course, famously, like, you know, both Claude and I are United Statesians. We, we live here in the political entity that is the inheritor of a big chunk of colonies that separated from the British Empire over the course of the 1760s to 1780s. Um, and throughout all of this, there was also on this kind of domestic front. So there's, there's, 
And all this, you have like a a small, a you know, a relatively small, but compared to other countries, much more kind of expansive ruling class uh, in Great Britain. Right? They had they because they already had a revolution in the in the sixteen uh, the sixteen hundred the mid sixteen hundreds with the English Civil War. You know, Oliver Cromwell and all that business. Uh, you know, the monarchy had been restored a long time ago, of course, but that kind of parliamentary power was much more exercised and respected. And at this point, the parliament was it reflected the interests of the large hereditary landowners, of course, your House of Lords. And the franchise was very, very restricted at this point. Maybe five percent of men, only men, actually voted for parliamentary elections. And you can guess that, of course, that was men at the tippy top of the social and economic ladder. So the people they sent tended to represent the interests of those people at the tippy top of the social and economic ladder. Um, but in a way, it was more it was a power more distributed than, say, in Ancien Regime France, right. which was, of course, that absolutist model centered on the court or, or even in, say, Prussia, which also had the kind of enlightened absolutism, which in the Enlightenment era, we tend to associate Enlightenment with the French Revolution, with kind of democratizing. Um, but at the time, the absolute monarchy was kind of considered the cutting edge of political technology. <laughs> right. That was really that was the Enlightenment mode. If you really want to look at the preponderance of uh, kind of thought and and you know, but but England and and, you know, and Great Britain in general had already kind of they were already charting their own path in that respect and in in addition to the kind of imperial these far-flung imperial commitments that uh, kind of seem to consume so much of the attention of uh, of that ruling class there was a kind of internal colonialism happening um, kind of most directly in Ireland uh, and this has been going on of course since the the 1200s when you had mm -hmm. you know the the normans going over and just kind of freebooting all over the island right. and because they owed their feudal allegiance to the king of england you know some some respected that allegiance some did not but you know ostensibly they owed it that's kind of that's kind of marked as the beginning of kind of english colonialism on the island that was really ramped up by elizabeth and cromwell kind of just inherited that project um and so by the mid 1700s you had in Ireland an incredibly complicated situation where there had been more or less actual ethnic cleansing in the north of the island in an attempt to pacify it so right. that you had that's one of the reasons why northern ireland is a powder keg today is because that part of the island catholic gaelic speaking people were evicted and murdered and cleared away they were literally cleared off the land to make room for what were called the Protestant plantations, which were people moved from uh, Scotland, uh, you know, good good Protestant uh, subjects of the United Scottish and, and English monarchy, um, brought over there to kind of keep a lid on things, um, and that actually gets tied into another kind of uh, project of internal colonialism that was happening in Great Britain at the time, which is the Highland Clearances. Right. And this is a little less kind of famous than some of the other uh, horrible shit <laughs> that the British ruling class got up to in their own home turf. But this was another project of ultimately ethnic cleansing of Gaelic-speaking people. Uh, this time in the the highland region of scotland which is kind of the more northerly the less developed poor part of scotland but there was a 
there was a growing population that the land couldn't quite uh, support. This was seen as a, a big problem. And there was a concerted, like, official effort to just get rid of these people, to clear them out of this land, to move them into cities like Edinburgh and Glasgow, uh, which is also very similar to another project of internal colonialism, which had been happening in the British Isles for a couple centuries by that point called Enclosure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, if, and if I'm jumping around a lot, Claude, just stop me or if I... If, 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 no, you know, this is all adding up to the scene of of England right before the revolution and exactly gets into the particular reaction to the revolution. But you've got this yeah, okay. this internal colonialism, as, as I think you aptly call it, and this series of clearances. So what kind of relationship does it create between – let's say the the landed gentry and mm-hmm. the subjects who are being ruled yeah i i'm i'm going to use the term the lower orders to kind of refer to anyone who wasn't in that kind of the the landed gentry class and up right um and, and which is it's a clumsy term it it really smooths out a lot of important differences but in the way that we're talking about it i think it's i think it's useful um but enclosure was a process which began in the late Middle Ages. Uh, there's a wonderful book. Um, I've, the name of the author escapes me right now, but there's a wonderful book called The Making of the English Working Class, which explores how, cause the, all this time leading up to the, you know, the, the, the revolution, the, you know, the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars is also time leading up to the Industrial Revolution. Right. And one is sort of stops to think, well, how can, how can England have had an industrial revolution? How can you have this capitalistic factory model ready to go or, or at least, you know, picking up steam, so to speak, <laughs> with, you know, Watt's steam engine um, without a workforce, a labor force? You know, if everyone's if everyone's a peasant living off the land, how could how do you induce them to come work in your dark satanic mill? And <laughs> the way they did that was by kicking people off the land. <laughs> Um, it was a process known as enclosure wherein the, the great landowners, kind of the great lords, uh, the great landlords uh, on, on, uh, on the island where there had been villages, uh, and common lands, right? The, there, there were, there were common land that everyone could use. There was no, you know, this, there were common pasturage. There were common rights to use the products of the forest. So you could go forage in the forest for your firewood, right? Or acorns to feed your hogs or what have you. And these, these were held in common. They were not, they didn't belong to anyone. They belonged to whoever was there to use them. Right. Enclosure was the process of creating private property. Mm-hmm. Ex nihilo, or rather not ex nihilo, out of this common property. <laughs> So by enclosing, it was a process called enclosing. You're literally closing off these common lands. You're closing off the ways in which these people made their living in the countryside and, and hanging a no trespassing sign on it and hiring other poor schmucks. You know, you hire a segment of these dispossessed people to shoot guns at the other people when they try to come use this land that their people have been using for centuries. That creates a whole class of people, this whole roiling mass of people with no choice but to find someone to like, what do they have to live on? Well, they have their bodies. Mm. They have their labor to sell 
and that's all that they have to live on. Yeah. That's the cre- that's the creation of the the kind of the classically defined working class, right? Who is working class? Well, it's anyone who has to sell their labor to live. Um and if that sounds like that describes you and everyone else you know, there's a reason for that. <laughs> it's um but uh so this process of enclosure, the Highland clearances creates a similar situation in Scotland. And in the midst of all this is the enlightenment. Right. Yeah. Especially the Scottish Enlightenment. You know, mm. Scotland was a big hotbed in part because of uh, kind of the old cultural and diplomatic contacts between the Scottish monarchy and the French monarchy because of their mutual enemy, England. There was a lot of interchange between the continent and Scotland, a lot more than you would think. You know, we think of it as this, you know, oh, that's the rainy north of the island that no one ever goes to. Well, it was it was a lot more connected and, and it's more connected than you think now. Yeah, but it definitely. was more especially in the the kind of the upper classes who had the time to sit around and have salons and write the critique of pure reason and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that also meant that, you know, it, it's France, of course, they had the revolution that pops off in 1789. They have the reputation for being the place with the hotbed of radicalism and republicanism and intellectuals but great britain had their own indigenous tradition of this i mean we can't forget there <laughs> the, the 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 british people you know or, or at least you know the british parliament murdered a monarch <laughs> like that like they beat the french to it by a good century and a half oh yeah um well, so I, and and i'm oh, sorry a, go ahead as a brief little aside i i had a, a professor in undergrad who was um he was Dryden's biographer and he he was an absolutely brilliant guy uh and he was an expert on the 18th century the long 18th century and he, he speculated once in class he said you know i had this idea that i could never prove but i think it's valid and maybe someday someone can do something with it but he said his hunch was that uh, Isaac Newton and the flourishing of the kind of sciences in the 18th mm-hmm. century was the result of the English Civil War in the 17th century because yeah. they so um, they took over the universities and made it so dangerous to study a lot of the old stuff that uh, <laughs> you were supposed to study, such as yeah. law and theology. And uh, that meant that the only thing that you could study and not like immediately, you know, run into charges of treason <laughs> would be useless subjects like mathematics and the sciences. That's uh, really – I've never heard that interpretation, but he, that's brilliant. He said that was his hunch and he could – he yeah. had never put two and two together completely. But if you start looking at things, <laughs> I, I'm sure there's a, a great dissertation in there somewhere. But anyway, yeah. Um, the the You're dead right. The, the English Civil War really is kind of like a, a forerunner to – the French Revolution. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. it ran on very, very similar grounds. Or, or there, mm-hmm. there are certain sort of broad parallels that I guess you can make between the two. You know, I, I don't want to yeah, get yeah. stuck in the rushes and say, "Oh, all of history <laughs> is a cyclical." No, 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 no. It's all accident and chaos. But there are these kinds of like broad parallels that you can make between the the, the English Civil War and the French Revolution. Yeah, especially when you can sort of tie a particular kind of tradition of thought. You know, yeah. more or less a through line all the way through, because the one of the uh, one of the most fascinating kind of results of, or less, I, I guess, kind of you know, one of the most fascinating things that came out of the English Revolution is, of course, you know, everything's been turned upside down by all this. So let's go crazy. Let's start thinking about everything. 
And you had political movements, uh, the most famous of which was the Levelers. Oh yeah. And by their name, you can kind of imagine what they're about. <laughs> and uh, when you and you had you know even you know I, my favorite of this is that you had a more extreme version of the Levelers called the Diggers. <laughs> like we're not just leveling, we're digging down. Um, but um, but yeah, there, there were all there were these you know it, with mass pamphlet uh, campaigns, these kinds of very egalitarian uh, political movements yeah. that. There was there was already a British tradition in these things, and those continued. And especially during the the Enlightenment and the Scottish Enlightenment, there were Republican, uh, kind of radical Republican correspondence societies. Actually, the most famous the most famous of these organizations was simply called the London Correspondence Society (LCS), which existed as basically like. Uh, well, you know, as everyone posting online about how they want to overthrow the government. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like that. Um, and so when the French Revolution pops off, the British ruling class takes a look around and it does not like what it sees. Yeah. <laughs> like there is this incredible uh, paranoia is the watchword for the British ruling class in the wake of the French Revolution. Paranoia. This was like 50 crises at once for these people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was, they were just coming off of losing a huge chunk of imperial territory in North America. Right. With the with the you know, they'd signed the treaty in 1783 with right. uh, with the Continentals uh, over in what became the United States of America. You know, so just six years before, um, which you know, it's not coincidental that the French Revolution popped off after that because of the financial commitments the crown made to support <laughs> the American Revolution yeah. kind of set the stage for the collapse that was to come. But, you know, you're looking around, you're you know, you're you're high on the hog there in London. Um and there's the French Revolution. So now the, the 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 old rivalry between France and England now takes on this incredibly sharp ideological aspect. Mm. And there are ideological allies at work in Great Britain on British soil. Right. Um, I mean, the paranoia is just through the roof. It's and it's it's very difficult for the one of the things that if you read about this, that historians really lament is that it's very difficult to get a good grip on just what kind of extent Republican ra- radicalism as an idea may have held in the lower orders. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, it's necessarily, one, you're talking about people who are by and large illiterate. Right, right, right. Um, their political education would have come from meetings and readings of pamphlets rather right. than the writing of pamphlets and the reading of them themselves. Um, so you don't have a lot of documentation of that. And also necessarily secret. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you don't you don't let everyone know that you're thinking, of, you know, the king is a crumb bum and you want to get rid of him. Right. Um, so it's difficult to get an idea of just, you know, what kind of a threat this kind of homegrown republicanism was. But from the standpoint of the British ruling class, any of it was too much. Um, so with the French Revolution and the inauguration of the Revolutionary Wars, the wars fought between and, and, and Britain never never get basically from 1789 to the final defeat of Napoleon, Britain was at war with France in whatever its political configuration, yeah. save for a few few years there in the middle. Right. Um, but it it basically meant like for the first time, uh, for the first time, the British army was on more or less permanent mobilization on British soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you've ever, I mean, if you've ever read like you know Pride and Prejudice. 
or you know several other like Jane Austen novels, and you're kind of wondering like, well, what are all these soldiers milling around? Like, why why yeah. are, why is our heroine always meeting soldiers? What is this about? It's because all of Southern England was this garrison zone. <laughs> because they were expecting at any minute the French to come across the channel and just destroy everything good and holy. Mm-hmm. And you know, they had some, you know, there was some reason to to think that was coming, of course, in part because there was actually in Ireland a an abortive Republican revolt. It actually sort of came off. And there it was with it was ostensibly going to be with French support, right? So France sees the opportunity kind of radical Republicanism has much more of a foothold in Ireland than it does in England for, I think we can all think obvious reasons. Um, but of course, coordination with these ideologically simpatico groups was very difficult considering when it comes to communication, you actually had to send a boat from Ireland to France or from France to Ireland to talk to, to talk to each other. Right. And what's in, what's in between you is the British Navy. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, the Royal Navy is going to make sure that that's, that's not going to happen. So there actually was a couple of abortive Republican revolts in Ireland, in, uh, in Wexford, in kind of the Western side of the Island and in Ulster, Hmm. the North, Northern Ireland, which included a lot of Protestants, which, extra alarm bells there um, because they were supposed to be there to keep the rabble down. Right. Um, of course there was no, there was no coordination. This was, I believe 1799 or 1800 flat um, that this all went off. Um, they were swiftly crushed by kind of local garrisons. Uh, and in the wake of that radical Republican size societies were ruthlessly repressed. Um, basically it was made illegal to question the the wisdom of of God and you know there, there being God and country and all is right with the world, <clears throat> kind of the um you know Great Britain has that that uh the reputation of being the kind of the crucible of quote unquote liberal values right in in Western Europe but uh, ooh, not this time buddy um, <laughs> yeah it's all relative but it, right right um but it was in the wake of all this that. Uh, there was basically like, you know, the British ruling class decides we need to really tamp down on this. And so the act of union with Ireland, which was really hotly debated for some years leading up to this, it was a big bone of contention. There was a separate Irish parliament, which Catholics can be a part of, mm. um, <laughs> that, that uh, kind of managed the affairs of the wealthy landowners who were all Protestant in Ireland. Um, you know, and that's, of course, uh, parallel to the parliament in Great Britain. Um, but of course the, you know, the ruling class back in London is thinking "Mm, we need to get more of a leash on these people. Uh, so it was basically debated for Ireland to be subsumed into the kingdom of great Britain. Uh, and this actually came off. It was, uh, the biggest bone of contention was whether to emancipate the Catholics. And Mm -hmm. when I say emancipate the Catholics, that just means that, the same legal and political rights enjoyed by Protestants would be extended to Catholics. That is not a democratizing kind of move in the way we would think of emancipation or civil rights today. That just meant that the top 5% of Catholic guys would get a vote, right? (laughs) But that was scary enough to King George, that George III, that he absolutely opposed it. And so uh, you had William Pitt, known as Pitt the Younger, he's very famous, basically created the modern Tory party. With his uh, with his administration, this you know Tory, the first Tory prime minister, mm. um, he actually expended a lot of political capital 
trying to negotiate the union with Ireland, which would extend those rights to Catholics. And he couldn't do it. Hmm. Um, the, the 1801 Act of Union dissolved the Irish Parliament, added 100 Irish seats to the British Parliament, and the United Kingdom of Britain and Ireland was born. That's, that's right. The UK <laughs> came about 1801 with all this stuff. Now, I'm talking about a lot of, a lot of sort of, uh, you know, high, high politics kind of stuff here, but it really did have huge effects on the ground. This was all kind of a program of increasing control on the part of large landowners who were increasingly seeing the, the rabble, you know, the lower orders who made their wealth for them as an increasingly menacing and alien presence. And in this kind of ironic turn, the this reactionary ruling class of Great Britain, so these people in Parliament, they're all by and large great landowners or wealthy merchants. Um, it's not in their interest to introduce any kind of like real egalitarianism into anything. But what's fascinating is that part of the reaction of these great landowners to this this new paranoia about radical republicanism, and in the service of conservatism. That being conserving their power, which, you know, you, you can talk about all kind of high minded definitions about conservatism with Edmund Burke until the cows come home. But it really boils down to whoever has power now keeps it. Um, but in the service of this conservatism, they began to end the ancient kind of customary systems of noblesse oblige in the countryside. Because up to this point, there had been a an assumed and uh, and not like not just ostensible, but an actually enacted sense of mutual responsibility to one another from the lower orders to the landowners. It was called the paternalist system, which has a lot of which has a lot of its own problems um, here in the United States. I, I'm reminded of uh, you had a kind of similar situation or rather, I, I guess, a kind of like more grotesque situation actually here in my hometown of Birmingham where there are a lot of steel mills and uh, there was one in particular uh, who the owner provided his workers with dormitories and schooling Sunday schooling specifically teaching them to read so they can read the Bible um, and of course they worked for him all day making him a very rich man uh, but if they ever drank on their time off from work when they're not on the clock or if they did not go to Sunday services they were fired and their families evicted. Oh, um, fun. Right. Yeah. Uh, but in, but in, in Great Britain, sort of, you know, leading up to this kind of reaction during the French Revolution and the Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic era, there was a kind of paternalist system where the landowners were assumed to owe something to their tenants. They were assumed to owe them some kind of, it was, well, it's a holdover from the feudal ideal, right? Of the, the Lord owes his serfs protection. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that comes to an end because, well, what are we doing protecting these people when they just want to kill us? When they <laughs> think that they have the right to rule over us? No, 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 no. We're putting an end to that. And that went hand in hand with the increasing need on the part of the central government to have more funding to fight these endless wars. <laughs> the, the great landowners saw that it was in their interest to go ahead and take the deal to pay more taxes to the central government in such a way that that just ended 
this kind of paternalist system amongst their tenants who are making that money for them uh, in order to prop up this wartime economy and these repressive uh, 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 policies. So it was really like this in combination with the Highland Clearances that we talked about, the Enclosure Act that we talked about, is the creation of this pool of desperate people who had only their labor to sell and no safety net, the working class. Mm -hmm. It was the doom. It was the doom of the old rural order. It's the end of the Shire, basically. (laughs) And all in the service of keeping the Shire. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Um, there was really, it's, it's astonishing to think about. It was this active demolishing of this, uh, old rural way of life. Yeah. Um, and this, but, but this, and, and this, uh, kind of on the, on, uh, on the same side of the coin is that this ruling class also recognized the political potential of the lower orders. Yeah. Like, yeah. If they're yeah, powerful yeah. enough that we can be afraid of them, then we need to somehow engage with this. So not only was there at the same time that the old paternalist system was being stripped away. There was a concerted wave of propaganda, which was and, – and political repression really inaugurated to turn the lower orders away from radicalism and republicanism in response to this into a project, transform their kind of preternatural conservatism, what we might call a kind of organic conservatism, and turn it toward – because you know, the organic conservatism would have been loyalty and affection toward your, your landlord who was good to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your landlord doesn't feel like he has to be good to you anymore. (laughs) What can you do with that organic conservatism? You turn it toward a nationalist project. Gotcha. Your loyalty is to king and country now. (laughs) You don't have – your loyalty to the order is secured not through your loyalty to your local landlord, who, of course, is fully invested in the order because he's your local landlord. Your loyalty to the ruling order is invested in the nation. The king and country against those against those disgusting French over across the channel. Right. And if this all sounds kind of eerily similar to the idea of what conservative parties thought that the fascists could do for them in the early 20th century, you're not wrong. Um, But uh, they 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 stress that the kind of, you know, the English liberties, quote unquote, that the lower orders enjoyed were totally reliant on this loyalty to the social order. Even as those liberties and prerogatives were being revoked, it was remarkably successful. This one-two punch of repression and propagandizing yeah. that really put the lid on radicalism during this time of you know in- insane warfare crisis. Yeah. Um, even as these processes of enclosure, uh, clearances, depaternalization, and industrialization are all just sharpening the edges of the classes and class consciousness. And what's funny is like nowadays you say class consciousness that's typically spoken of in regards to working class people, you know, or, 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 you know, lower class people. And it's typically people bemoaning a lack of class consciousness among, (laughs) among, you know, uh, uh, exploited people around the world. But this, what's, what's fascinating is that it's really class consciousness and class solidarity was clearly most at work among the the higher orders, the upper class. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they saw where their interests lied together and standing shoulder to shoulder with each other uh-huh. and and in sort of recruiting the lower orders to that. Huh. Um, so it's a real – I mean what, what do you even – you know, what do you even do with a situation like this? It's what I, what I think is uh, one last kind of point I'll make about like kind of setting the kind of the broad social strokes here is that the ideology of empire and the British empire got a big boost also. Right. Thanks in part to Napoleon, um, because 
in wanting to bring the war with Great Britain to a close so that he could then concentrate on his new order on the continent where he's established, where he's demolishing the old aristocracies and establishing new republics all over the place. Um, he just wants to kind of get Britain to just take a deal and sit it out. And in order to kind of force that, he introduces what's called the continental system, which was supposed to be a complete shutting off of Europe from Great Britain. That was, there was going to be no trade from Britain into the continent and vice versa. <laughs> Just strangle them. Yeah. But Britain has well, colonies. Britain has colonies. Exactly. So that and, – and also the French military just didn't have the capacity to enforce yeah. that. There's just no way they could do it. But also Great Britain has colonies that the French Navy can't stop from getting you know resources and goods into Great Britain. And then you have like you know luxury resources like coffee and sugar that the British can then smuggle onto the continent for even more money than they were going to get, <laughs> you know, selling it legit. So the empire becomes – it's a lifeline. You know, there, there were a couple of there were a couple of famines. Mostly, like the economic situation in in Great Britain was dire. A couple of times, there were times of hunger. You know, there there was belt tightening, and in those moments, the empire that was your lifeline. Yeah, you know that's that's how you get buy in from these people who are ruthlessly exploited, and I mean, it's incredible. I mean, there you know there, there's a reason why you know Karl Marx went to London in order to observe industrialization <laughs> and. And and he created Marxism out of yeah. it because of what he saw. There's a reason why, um, but you had that buy-in um, right. for these for all these various reasons. And what I think is kind of fascinating about this, you know, this whole social dynamic is that there's obviously a great deal of upheaval at work. Things are changing rapidly. Things are changing over the course of a lifetime that no one had ever seen that kind of change before. And at the same time. It's, it's, you know, and well played on the British ruling class. It's all being turned to reinforce yeah. king and country in a, in a way that really no other European state had as much success at. Um, you, you can, well, you can look at the history of France in the 19th century and see how they, <laughs> they really struggled to, to pull that off. But, um, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of, that's the, the you know, we're, we're concentrating on England with the, with the romantic period. But, you know, like you said, we, we'll probably be taking a look at other kind of continental writers as well. And I'll, I'll, I'll want to do more research and have more to say on what kind of the continent was like and all this. But, but this is an area of history that I personally have a great deal of interest in. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> I can tell. Um, and, and so it was really fascinating to me, like, think about like this time frame, And of course, like the, you know, what what are the themes that come up in romanticism? Well, you know, when I think romanticism, I, you know, I don't know much about it, but I always think of like, well, bucolic countryside shit, you know, yeah, bucolic the, countryside shit. <laughs> that that sums not, up, you know, that sums up a good chunk of Wordsworth, honestly. Well, it, and that's not being fair to him. I know there's, there's more to it than that, but like that, but just knowing that it's during this time that, you know, it's a, it's a dead man walking. Yeah. Country life. No, it's, it, uh, it's, it it's so sad is. and strange. Yeah. And well, I but, mean, it's, yeah. it, it, that's, that's a, in a lot of ways, that's what Wordsworth charts is the disappearance of that. And, you know, it, it goes back and forth. Sometimes you read them and you're thinking, you know, this is trying to get a handle on a, a I mean, th so much of Wordsworth, you know, we're going to be talking about Wordsworth and Coleridge, but so much of Wordsworth is about the ground shifting underneath your feet. When, when I experience, experience this thing 
younger growing up, it was like this. And now the whole world is radically altered. Um, on the one hand, there's the charting of that. On the other hand, it can lapse into nostalgia. Um, mm. at, at its worst, it really lapses into, oh, weren't things perfect when I was a kid? No, when you were a kid, you just didn't know no better, you know? Mm. Um, but, but I, I think that's a, a, a good place to kind of start <laughs> is with Wordsworth. Um, Wordsworth was born in 1770. He, he died in 1850. He was from, uh, Sorry, I'm reading my notes and I can't read. Uh, he was from a middle class family um, with roots in the Lake Country. Like um, the, it, it was, you know, the extended family was from this particular district, and uh, his father was a legal agent to wealthy landowners. Um, what his father appeared to be was a kind of, um, I guess, property manager. He, he wasn't exactly yeah. like I, – I don't believe he was exactly like a lawyer, but he was kind of like the guy who who uh, like looked over things or managed the property. And the family lived yeah. on the property, sort of in a house there. And the problem was that the landowners didn't pay. Um, they owed the family money uh, for – I think it was like 20 years. Um <laughs> Wow. No, I'm sorry. It was less there's, than that. It was like yeah. 10 years or something like that. Um, the, the Talk about the end of paternalism. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they, they just kind of kept stiffing them and kept stiffing them and kept stiffing them. But, you know, they, they had enough, I guess, to live on uh, because Wordsworth was the second of five kids. Um, his early life was okay. His father taught him to memorize poetry. Uh, that's where he sort of developed this kind of fascination or love for it. And we're coming on the heels of the emergence of the poet as a, a, a vocation or poetry as a vocation. Uh, we, we talked about this a little bit back when we were doing Samuel Johnson. You know, one of uh, Johnson's, I, I guess, pseudo friends. One of the people he writes about was Alexander <laughs> Pope. And, and Pope mm -hmm. was the first professional writer. Um, and he was a writer who was a poet. This, now the way he did it was by translating, but, um, he, he could make his living with his pen and was extraordinarily successful at that. And that became, I guess, the model to strive, to, strive for. Now, the interesting part is that we're, we're coming off of that kind of elevated well, – elevated is the wrong word. How do I put it? The, the major mode of the 18th century was a heroic couplet, um, mm -hmm. rhymed iambic pentameter or two consecutively rhymed lines of iambic pentameter. Um, the, the 18th century made a kind of overarching aesthetic statement that – the heroic couplet and its particular lineation was the elevation of verse that mirrored sort of the height of thought. And if aristocrats weren't actually producing it, then it was still sort of aristocratic in um, aspiration, I suppose. So it yeah. was a, a pretty straightforward hierarchy of taste. Um, and, and they made no bones about the class structure being a part of the hierarchy of taste. Uh, if it's elevated and higher, then it's naturally better and better reflective of nature. That's the way they thought about it. So yeah. uh, we're sort of coming off of that. And a lot of that mode is still operative in 
this sort of late late 18th century you know time period in which Wordsworth is 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 emerging but his father apparently had him reading uh William Shakespeare reading and memorizing William Shakespeare uh Edmund Spencer Spencer was you know one of those magistrates to Ireland that you were talking about he had a, a strong, bloody hand in putting down uh, an Irish revolt, and he also did yeah. um, sort of like an early, I guess, attempt at an epic. Some would call it an epic, but the Fairy Queen, which is this, um, yeah, yeah. You know, if you have an interest in, um, I guess, knights and shit. Uh, sorry, right. the the, <laughs> or, the Tolkienian stuff. It, it, um, yeah, Spencer uh, made an epic out of well, knights and shit, the Tolkienian stuff. Uh, but he did it by sort of how do you put this? He adopted all these weird archaisms and things to make it look mm-hmm. medieval when it wasn't. So I mean, it's it's a fun, weird, strange, artificial baddie book to read. Uh, but it's you know got all of its uh, allegorical fun in there. Anyway, um, Wordsworth sort of grew up reading that, reading Shakespeare, and reading Milton. Uh, this this kind of threw me a little bit because I, I'm still kind of curious about the the reception history of Milton. Um, it's a mixed bag. I mean, <laughs> to this day, I think there's some ambivalence about Milton in in the UK because he was a king killer, because he was involved in the revolution, because he was the radical. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's this this kind of weirdness surrounding him. Uh, why would Wordsworth be reading Milton? I mean, it, it seems as if some of that, I suppose, must have. Um, or, or I guess some of that reputation as a king killer must have sort of tamped down a little bit, or 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 I guess been muted over time. But anyway, those are the kinds of things he was reading. He was also reading uh, Don Quixote and The Arabian Nights. So you've got that kind of um, I guess hyper literariness coming in with Don Quixote and yeah. the Orientalism with the the Arabian Nights. Which feeds yeah, yeah. into the romantic supernaturalism and the Gothic. All right, <clears throat> that comes later. In 1778, his mom dies, and in 1784, his dad dies. So his father, both of his parents are dead by the time he's 14. Um, he has extended family, and so he's sent off to school. Um, he doesn't board at the school, but sort of in the town nearby. And the family is kind of dispersed. I think one or two of his brothers go to school with him. His sister, uh, Dorothy, who's sort of like one of his major um, companions throughout his life, she goes to live with some relatives. All right. So he studies um, basically math in the classics. And he's, he's really good at it. Um, yeah. So one of the, you know, it's, it's important to keep in mind here that, you know, one of the claims made about romanticism or about the romantics is that they're antithetical to, you know, the old high learning. Well, there, some of them can be antithetical to it, but because they're indebted to it. Uh, and then later on, when you get to someone like Shelley, I mean, Shelley was steeped in his Plato, and he was reading it in the original Greek. Um, he's using that all throughout. So it's not that they're sort of 
dispensing with the past or sort of trying to, you know, throw it over in this way to establish a, a, a new and bold ignorance, they're, they're using it to revise it. I think that's the, the best way to think about it. All right. So anyway, um, yeah. he's studying his math and classics and he's encouraged to try his hand at poetry. And it's, it's when he's a teen. Hey, this sounds all too familiar to most anyone who's ever tried to write a poem. But as a teen, uh, that's when he really sort of picks it up and thinks, okay, this is something that I can do. This is something I want to practice. And so he begins, you know, writing as a teen while he's at school. Um, some of these are exercises. Some of them are translation exercises. Those would have been common. But he sort of starts working at that. Now, lurking in the background here, you have the rise of the poets of sensibility. Um, all right. It's, it's not exactly fair to say that everything that was being put out in the 18th century was, you know, these, these. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. extraordinarily polished heroic couplets and then all of a sudden here come Wordsworth and Coleridge and boom romanticism it, it, it was a long process now while Pope was still alive there were these poets who were I guess considered rural poets there was an interest a growing interest in working class poetry so a lot of the dispossessed that you're talking about, if they yeah. were literate or, or had access to the press, then you could get some of this material out there. And there's, you know, a friend of mine is working on one right now. There are these recovery projects to try to understand what working class poetry was like, what it was doing. And a lot of it was really pretty popular. Mm-hmm. Um now, what sort of begins to happen is <coughs> this stuff is read for, I mean, this is going to sound all too familiar. Uh, this stuff is read for a sense of authenticity, right? But it's read by the burgeoning middle class for its sense of lower class authenticity. And then the middle class poets begin to ape it and hmm. sort of use that to mark their own sincerity or mark their own sense of authenticity. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Um, there are these these weird kind of moments, but there is this turn or this emergence of, I guess, what you could call a um, a cult of sensibility. Cult is the wrong word. I think that's the pejorative term that was used at the time. But it's a it's a cult <laughs> of sensi- uh, of um, 
of sentiment. Now, what this means isn't exactly what we think it means when we call something sentimental. You know, when you denigrate mm-hmm. something as sentimental, it's overly sappy. This concern for sentiment was not just an aesthetic concern. It was also a, a, a sort of... I hesitate to say metaphysical, but it's sort of leaning in that direction. It's kind of a philosophical concern as well. Why do you feel things? How do you feel things? Right? And not just feel things as in emotion as something felt, but also sensation. And what is the difference between emotion and sensation? So it's not like they're naively just um, spitting out, oh, this is what I feel. This is my emotion. Take it. It's raw, naked, you know pity me or something like that like you think of emotional (laughs) you know sentimental poetry being this is trying to sort of suss out well what does it mean to feel right in a lot of ways um so you have poets kind of emerging with this you have chatterton you have thomas gray who's um oh i always botch the title and i'm gonna have to look it up right now but his elegies, <laughs> the the elegy written in a country churchyard, that always uh, trips off of my tongue so delicately. No, but Thomas Gray wrote the elegy written in a country churchyard, which is this meditation on, on death and existence, sort of what is the place of the person in this sort of world of change. Um, it's a pretty gloomy poem, but a wonderfully gloomy, gloomy poem. Um, and then you have Charlotte Smith, who who writes um, sonnets. Uh, but I believe her term was... Um, did she write the elegiac sonics? Yeah. So she wrote um, sonnets uh, that were sort of about these kind of emotional things it's it's sensibility right um so anyway you she was also involved in in sort of writing gothic novels and things like that um but so you have uh charlotte smith thomas gray chatterton oh sorry i'm not trying to denigrate gothic novels gothicism Mm -hmm. and the supernatural um are a part of the sentimental or they're sort of emerging around the sentimental Right. Um, which makes a kind of sense because, you know, everything has to do with you yeah. know, sensation and aesthetics and trying to understand all this stuff. Um, and I, I would say um, uh, loyal listeners to the show will will understand that we have a very positive view toward the Gothic and it's <laughs> it's it's role as a as a really a, a fountainhead for so much uh, genre work that we enjoy. No, absolutely. So <clears throat> anyway, you also have Robert Burns. And um, Burns, I think, has become, to to the great chagrin of the Scottish, the kind of like patron poet of Scotland. Um, But what what Burns did was wrote in Scots dialect and the Scots language. And um, that was sort of this radical move. At the time, it, it really opened up. What a, it, it, it opened up for a lot of people this idea of what you could do with the poem, and what you could do with the language in the poem. And the other thing that these poets are sort of exploring are, you know, taking a, a, a page from some of these rural poets or the working class poets. What they're exploring are other metrics, you know, other. <sighs> I hesitate to say genres, but 
other in that mode, other genres of of, of poetry, right? Um, yeah, yeah. It doesn't just have to be the heroic couplet. And that I'm trying not to get too digressive with this. But that leads to <laughs> this kind of thinking through of what Wordsworth and Coleridge mean when they call it lyrical ballads. The lyric is a genre that's not a genre. It's become kind of like the 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 major way of thinking about any poem. Any poem is this um short, brief um, projection of poetic experience in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think it's uh, like the term itself. Like I, I know the term best from one. That's what you call the words and songs. Yeah. And two, it's just kind of used as a general descriptor for when language is aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, I mean that's what it means now. If you yeah, ask, yeah. <laughs> if you ask the Greeks, they would have something else entirely. It, it was a, <laughs> a, a poem for an occasion. Um, yeah, it, it was a poem that emphasized sonic qualities written for a particular occasion. Uh, a ballad is a particular form. It's you know sad to say, but it's kind of the Dr. Seuss form. It's A B A B or A B C B, and it's usually. Um, I think it's uh, four feet, three feet, four feet, three feet, or four feet, four feet, four feet, three feet. So it's da 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 da. It's the Doctor Seuss beat. It's the nursery rhyme beat. Yeah. It's it's I guess a traditionally rural form with roots. I believe going back to the Middle Ages in in England. So it's it's this clash of terms um you know the and the lyric what it signified at the time seems to have been just something to emphasize the occasional and sonic qualities right um if anybody's interested in this by the way there's a whole sort of subset of study of genre within poetry called lyric theory and um, part of where I'm drawing this is from Virginia Jackson's book, Dickinson's Misery, where she kind of does a deconstructive reading of the genre of lyric. And I'm not using deconstructive in sort of, uh, well, she just means analysis. No, she's drawing from demand to sort of break apart how we think about the parameters of lyric. And um, yeah. the other one that I think is uh, a little bit more useful for any like general reader is Jonathan Colors um I think it's just called lyric theory or lyric genre but Jonathan Color started as a, a structuralist then became a post structuralist but way back in his structural days he did this essay on the apostrophe which is the direct address to someone or something that's not there and um it was this weird insight where basically when a poet is, is saying you, it can have this weird side effect of including the reader in or creating this feeling that the reader is a part of the poem. And so he yeah. extrapolated from that into a whole theory of the lyric. It's it's really brilliant and, and wild and out there. But if anybody's into this, go read those. All right. So to get back to it, the, the whole point that I'm trying to make is that lurking in the background of of – Wordsworth's, I guess, adolescence and like late adolescence and early 20s is all of this material that is slowly changing just below the surface. So the, the, the kinds of poetry that are being produced and the reasons for producing that kind of poetry are, are different. 
Does that make sense? So yeah, yeah. going along with this, you have the emergence of the poet as an occupation. Um, you can make money at this stuff. And part of that money-making endeavor <laughs> is going to play into the publication of uh, lyrical ballads. All right. So anyway, um, he in his last year in school, he actually writes this long gothic supernatural poem. And again, this is kind of between the two of them, between Wordsworth and Coleridge, it always seems like Wordsworth is taking on the, okay, I'm going to write the nature poetry and these observations of common life. Here, Coleridge, you write about ghosts and vampires and all the creepy shit. Um, but yeah. Wordsworth also had his, his hand in, in the Gothic. And you can see this in some of his like darker, um, sort of naturalistic tales, I guess you would call them, uh, or naturalistic poems. <coughs> Excuse me. So he, uh, he, he writes this long gothic supernatural poem. I think we've got about 500 lines of it or something like that, if I remember my sources. Uh, we don't have the whole thing, but we've got chunks of it, but it seems to have been huge. Um, he goes to St. John's College, Cambridge at reduced fees, which is basically like, um, he was a, a poor scholar, so they let him in for less money. I'm, I'm not quite sure if that meant he got a sort of second-class degree or what exactly that meant for his education, but what it seems to have been is a, a class marker, if anything. Um, yeah. He, he purposely pursued the less spectacular subjects. It's sort of like he went out of his way to, to be contrarian. Um, his, his legal guardians and, and his monetary guardians were sort of pushing him, you know, you, you could be a brilliant scholar. You could do this, you could do that. And he's just going, well, I don't want to, I want to study Italian. I don't want to study law. Uh, and that's what he did. He studied modern languages. So again, we're not talking about someone who's um, ignorant of, of, I guess, capital C culture or, or, or higher learning or things like that. He's, he can put on this kind of rural sensibility, but this guy, he's, he's got a fancy education under his belt. All right. So he's being, um, sort of pushed into either, you know, law or the clergy, which were kind of like the safe bets. Um, but instead of, you know, taking a bunch of internships over the summer and polishing his resume and, you know, getting all those references in order. Um, he took a long walking tour in the French Alps in October of 1790. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you know your French history, you know that um, shit's getting bad. Um, <laughs> right. That's, so, that's heating up nicely. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, um, his his reasons for for going to France are a little unclear. I mean, 
probably a part of it was just to be a badass and participate in the revolution or feel like you're participating in the revolution. Um, maybe part of it was curiosity. Maybe it was some kind of like reckless adolescent drive. Uh, I, there's, there's a lot of speculation about why exactly he went, but he did. Um, anyway, he took this tour in the French Alps in 1790. Uh, he goes back and finishes college, you know, the next semester. And then in 1791, he decides to go to France again. <laughs> so, um, he's, he's there, you know, for the revolution, more or less. Um, you know, as, if not for the actual fighting, then as things are heating up. Yeah. Um, his, his relationship to the revolution is really kind of weird. Uh, he does seem to have been, all right, this is sort of the famous thing about Wordsworth. Um, <clears throat> according to Shelley, he, he turned his back on the revolutionary ideals. He and Coleridge both. Um, and again, Shelley was kind of, I, I don't know. Shelley either had his head up his ass or in the clouds. Either way, it got a little hard to see. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> anyway, to, to get back to it. Yeah. Wordsworth famously, you know, he began with these, you know, sympathetic revolutionary ideals or, or could be seen as doing so. And then by the end, he's canvassing for the Tories up north. I mean, he, he became a, a staunch arch conservative. You can even see it in his poetry. I mean, there's like a clear dividing line. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. But uh, <clears throat> what he was doing in France in the 1790s is, is it's kind of unclear. Like, what exactly did he believe in? He certainly cultivated revolutionary contacts like a lot of his first poems were put out through um presses that also printed revolutionary material and when we're talking revolutionary material i'm not talking like <laughs> outright sedition but yeah yeah you know politically radical you know, let's put it that way um anyway so it seems that in some way he's aligned with that. But when he was in France, he really cultivated relationships with these kind of like, not exactly aristocrats, but aristocrat adjacent. Um, yeah. Yeah. He, he struck up friendships with minor aristocracy or aristocracy adjacent kind of people. And he has an affair with Annette, uh, Vallon and gets her pregnant. Um, this, you know, one of these aristocrats, <laughs> aristocrat adjacent women um he has an affair with her she gets pregnant um he doesn't stick around for the birth he, apparently he runs out of money and goes back to england oh <laughs> yeah um uh, that's a bit like uh do you, I, I remember very vividly when i read on the road when i was 18 years old which is probably the time when you ought to read it because it had such a reputation and I remember putting it down in disgust at the part where the uh, our, our protagonist just leaves a woman in Mexico that he got pregnant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so it's, like you were saying about history, like it doesn't it's not a circle. But <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, but he uh, he goes back to to England um, before his daughter is bo born. Uh, he, he's, he's running out of money and kind of needs to go back and make his way. 
Um, I think some of the sources are read. Uh, I'm getting a lot of this, by the way, from the Dictionary of Literary Biography. Uh, and there are several entries, depending on you know what entryway <laughs> you take into Wordsworth. Um, but there are several entries on them, and and it, the 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 view seems to be mixed. Uh, I think there were a couple of sources that said, well, he wanted to go back to England to um, get his finances back up, either to go back and take care of the daughter, or bring them over. Um, but some of that was also saying, yeah, that might be dubious. <laughs> Not quite sure what he was up to. Um, yeah. in, in any case, he, he left and went back to England. Um, whatever he was trying to do, uh, war broke out and so he couldn't get back across, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. he, he was, ostensibly on the side of the French lower class, but he was horrified by the mob violence, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of back and forth seems to have been with him his entire life. So when you're talking about buy-in to the conservative project, that seems to be where he goes, right? Yeah. Um, he buys into it as, I guess, you know, protecting his own interest or protecting the interests of the upper classes. So anyway, um, <clears throat> he he spends some time in London with his brother, who's a lawyer. He goes for a long walking tour um, through Wales, and it's on that walking tour that he begins a lot of the poems that end up in lyrical ballads. Uh, you know, I was joking about this being one magical summer, which you know it kind of is. But a lot of the poems, <laughs> yeah. both on, I mean, both on the part of Coleridge and and Wordsworth, a lot of the poems were begun earlier. Uh, they they had their genesis elsewhere. They, you know, this is sort of stuff they had in the back catalog, you know. And it's not like they're magically sitting down and just producing these poems. They're they're publishing, you know, they're writing from their teens and and working at these things and working at these things and working at these things. All right. So anyway, um, he starts writing some of the darker poems, actually, that, that go into uh, his half of lyrical ballads. Um, and it's on this walking tour that he famously passes Tintern Abbey. Uh, he, when we get into lyrical ballads, I'll show you, but he has this poem, uh, Tintern Abbey. Well, that's what it's abbreviated as. Um, yeah. But he writes about his memories of passing through there once and then going back there and experiencing this kind of transcendental wholeness from this, you know, later viewpoint. But anyway, it's on this walking tour that he passes there. Um, in 1797, he publishes uh, a few poems, descriptive sketches, and they're published by a radical bookseller. So he he knows the radical guys, and he cultivates some of those relationships, even if he's not entirely simpatico with them. Um he wrote a poetic attack on the monarchy, but didn't publish it. Um, and then he, he tries to go to London again to work as a journalist and that doesn't work. And finally in 1795, um, he inherits money from a friend, uh, who he helped through his final illness. Uh, he had helped a friend of his die essentially had been kind of like a nurse in his house and um, the the friend was this wealthy dude who who said, you know, I want to leave you enough money so that you can follow your your vocation. 
um, <laughs> nice thing to do. At the same time, uh, he had another friend who basically said, hey, listen, you can have my cottage up north for free. I got this cottage. Why don't you go <laughs> live there? Um, so these are these are kind of windfalls. And these are the kind of breaks that Wordsworth seems to have. Um, as, as much as, you know, I'll show you when we get to Tintern Abbey. When, whenever I teach that poem, um, my students get turned off because they think it's like a bunch of narcissistic raving until you get to the end and you realize it's in the second person. He's, um, he's, uh, speaking to his sister. Um, (laughs) it's, it's, it's in the second person. The whole thing is, you know, to this other person, but that speaks, I think, to the way that Wordsworth can sometimes present himself as this, you know, isolated, tortured loner, when in reality, he's got this large network and he's got this extended family. In fact, um, later on when he has a kind of falling out with Coleridge, that's one of the things Coleridge is going to, you know, criticize him for. He's got all these women around him at all times taking care of him. And that's, you know, that sounds like this infantilizing gesture, but it's also this, this literal thing. The way I believe we spoke about this on the intelligent speech conference where we were talking about women's poetry in the 19th century, it was a domestic division of labor. And he essentially employed his sister, uh, a sister-in-law, and a couple of other women in his family to run the house for him. You know, so that's sort of how everything worked out. He had this, this network of people who could kind of do all this stuff while he sat around feeling and experiencing things. Um, in any case, uh, he, he takes up, he, he goes to the cottage, um, with his sister Dorothy and they shut, they set up shop. Um, and the cottage is pretty close to this other well-known London writer. Well, not London, but, uh, English writer, raconteur, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. All right. Yeah. Now, Coleridge and Wordsworth had met earlier, but they were kind of sort of neighbors or in the same neighborhood um, in the late 1790s. And it's there that their collaboration really begins. Okay. So let's switch to Coleridge. All right. Coleridge was born in 1772 and died in 1834. Um, he's from Devonshire. He was the youngest of 10, and his father was a vicar. Um, he was a difficult kid. Um, he, he was pretty temperamental, kind of hot-headed. Um, one of the anecdotes I read had him, uh, I, I can't remember how old he was, but he was young. Uh, he pulled a knife on one of his other brothers and then, um, got sort of in trouble for it so bad that he ran away from home and went to go live down by the river where a friend of the family's found him and said, just come on back home. Um, now <laughs> the knife that he pulled on his brother was a kitchen knife, but still, <laughs> okay. Um, now I, I don't know if this is accurate. Okay. So I'll, I'll get to that in a second. In, in 1781, his father dies and he's sent to, um, Christ Hospital in London. 
uh, as a charity scholar. Now, he writes about this, you know, in his later poems about he hated London. And it's really kind of fascinating to see romantic attitudes towards the city. Um, the, the, the British romantics as a whole are somewhat ambivalent. Um, you know, uh, Coleridge doesn't like the city. Uh, he hated it. He wanted to go back to the country because he just remembers being beaten in boarding school day after day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wordsworth finds some things to like about the city, but you know, the, the other major romantics, Blake and Keats, those were the city kids. And they're kind of the most extreme in some respects when you get either into the aesthetics or into like the visionary apocalypticism. Um, hmm. I don't think Shelley can even match Blake for being far out and weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah. German romanticism tends, from my understanding of it, it tends to be extraordinarily hostile towards city life and, you know, uh, elevates the rural. Uh, my understanding of French romanticism is that, you know, for all of the, the trappings of, you know, elevating the countryside, France has always been so centered on Paris or Paris has always been so central to the way that France is run that um, a lot of French romanticism seems to be kind of like weirdly city driven. And I'm thinking here of something like Victor Hugo, um, I guess nobody re- really reads Hugo anymore, but, uh, Hugo's novels, you know, Les Miserables and Notre Dame de Paris, I mean, they're, they're all about the city as this place of aesthetic splendor. Um, it's yeah. all about the history of the place in this way that, you know, Wordsworth writes about the countryside. But anyway, so that, that's just kind of like this weird aside. All right. Um, so he's sent to the, the city, he's sent to London, he hates every minute of it. Um, he, he goes to Jesus College, Cambridge, where he runs up debt. Um, he mistakenly thought that he could charge all of his furniture and not have to pay it. He thought he had some kind of, I guess he was just following the custom of everyone else he saw. Um, kind of a naive guy. He was a brilliant scholar, and okay, this is this is up for debate, I guess. But I, and I'm not sh- quite sure the accuracy of it. But I've had two professors, one in undergrad and another in grad school, describe him as essentially child prodigy. Um, yeah. He he was extraordinarily gifted. He he could apparently just pick up things extraordinarily easily. Um, and again, I don't know if that description absolutely fits, but his the his sort of career arc, his life arc, kind of fits it. You know, one of the things about child prodigies is that they often have a crack up point. Um, there's so much pressure on yeah. them to produce that you know they go off in some weird direction or crack up entirely and just you know can't handle the pressure or they crack and find some way to navigate it or something like that and and that that seems to be where Coleridge kind of ends up you know sadly enough anyway um so he becomes a radical in in college or as a result and in 1794 he works with Robert Southey uh, another uh, writer, poet, and soon-to-be enemy, literary and otherwise. Um, 
he works with this guy to develop this this commune, this idea for I think it was called Pantisocracy. They were going to go to the U.S. and start this commune, and um, I guess live in some kind of transcendental protestant splendor or something like that um courage is sort of following the pathway to the unitarian ministry uh yeah yeah but um part of the project involves getting married and courage goes through with it and i believe Sully doesn't um and anyway the project <laughs> dissolves and here we have courage with a wife and trying to support a family a, a wife he doesn't exactly like that much um, yeah. he's trying to support a family and he's trying to sort of figure things out um he he gets into writing he he throws himself into writing and sort of starts to make it as a journalist and a poet he publishes some stuff in london um, he, he works around in London as a kind of minor journalist, if I, if I remember correctly. And he starts getting a reputation. And so he sort of starts making waves as someone with all the best ideas. And this is the thing about Coleridge. He's got all the best ideas, but no follow through. Um, he needs <laughs> other people. He that's, needs, uh, yeah, that's, uh, let let me just say, listeners, that the Cannonball would not really exist as a project if it was just up to me. So let me just say that I feel some kinship with Mr. Well, it, me either. I mean, like, I, I've got tons of things I'd love to do that I, I just, I I cannot follow through with. But he needs a collaborator. Yeah. You know, yeah. he, he needs someone to to sort of walk him through it to get to the end. Um, but he's, he's kind of a mover and shaker and he's developing this reputation. And, um, I think a lot of it has to do with the ways that he can be convincing. He was a very good talker and he could be very convincing about, um, all these crazy projects that he has. All right. So anyway, um, he moves to the West country and really sort of cultivates a group and sort of, you know, like just works on developing this idea of himself and um, that's where he he has connections to. Sorry, he had met um, back in college. I think it was uh, Charles Lamb and Lee Hunt, and those are mm-hmm. two other major movers and shakers in in the literary world in the time period. Um, both of them are are essayists, and I, I believe Hunt was a publisher as well. And so you're you're talking about sort of developing these connections, developing a network, putting this all together, and kind of getting people moving in one direction. Okay, so um, he's a great conversationalist. He can keep you going, keep you on the edge of your seat, and sort of like monologue into you. It depends on who you are, whether or not you like this. Uh, There are some, you know, uh, I guess, reminiscences written about, you know, how just brilliant and fascinating he could be. And then there's some reminiscences written about how, you know, you you just like take a sip of water and just leave me alone for five minutes, that kind of thing. Stop (laughs) monologuing at me. So it, it depends on your taste for monologues, I guess. But um, he'd met Wordsworth in 1795, but now that um, they're living close by, they really begin to collaborate. And so that's where you get to, you know, what I'm calling the summer of 1797. That's one magical summer. All right. This plays 
absolutely into that kind of crazy paranoia that you were talking about um, sort of early on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cold War era is, seems to me to be a, a good enough comparison. I mean, this sort of seems like the summer of 69 before, you know, things went to shit with the Manson murders. Um, the, the attitude is one, you know, as best I can tell, it's one of, um, astounding liberation and fascination and sort of unconventional living and, you know, pushing the boundaries of, you know, metaphysics and this, uh, you know, very existential questions. Uh, on the other hand, you've got, you know, <laughs> the FBI is tapping the phone and, you know, can I leave a package <laughs> right. here and all this shit like that. Um, so I'll tell you the, the most famous anecdote that kind of comes of this. Uh, the Wordsworths and, and the Coleridge's could be somewhat unconventional. I mean, they're, they're trying to make their living through this, I guess, somewhat unconventional, um, through somewhat unconventional means, you know, what, what does it mean to be a writer? Um, yeah, how do yeah. you do this? What kind of hours do you keep? So the, you know, the Wordsworths would go on these long country hikes at all hours. So they're, you know, out all night walking on the moors. Um, you know, uh, well, I guess we're not in the moors, but, um, you get the idea. They're out all night. They, they're, they're not observing the sort of regular, you know, routines of those around them. And so they're drawing a little bit of attention. And it's already known that Coleridge and Wordsworth have these connections to radical publishers. Um, they've published some things themselves that are pointing in the direction of free thinking and things like that. Uh, so there's this sort of famous anecdote. Um, Coleridge and, and Wordsworth were being trailed by government spies. They, they're, you know, to, to use the contemporary example, their, their phones were being bugged. So they would go on these <laughs> right. long country hikes and there were basically agents of the government sort of sneaking around following them in the bushes. And um, one of these guys, one of these government agents started getting freaked out because he was like, these guys are supposed to be, you know, really smart guys. They're supposed to be really attuned. They know I'm here. Fuck, they found me. They figured me out. And um, he was going back over his notes because, um, you know, he was following these two guys riding, having these intense conversations. And then this dude kept saying, Spinozy, Spinozy, Spinozy. <laughs> Um, he knows there's a spy. He knows there's a spy in the bushes. Fuck, I figured oh, out. No, no, it was Coleridge with his thick accent talking about his enthusiasm for the philosopher Spinoza. Spinoza. Yeah. Spinozzi. Um, so it, wow. it was a stupid anecdote. <laughs> I mean, that, that apparently actually happened. Um, you know, it's a stupid anecdote, but it was a time, of, you know, intense exuberation and intense paranoia all at the same time. You know, I, I, I'm thinking of something like Joan Didion's White Album, like the essay she wrote yeah, yeah. about living, living in California in, you know, I think it was like 68 to 71 and <laughs> felt like the world was coming apart because the world was coming apart. Um, yeah. So anyway, they begin working together and, 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 just walking and talking and, and sharing ideas, sharing ideas about what they think poetry is, sharing poems that they've written, sharing, you know, 
what they think a poem should be or do. Um, now they're unconventional, but we're not talking about like Byronic wild orgies, you know, so don't, yeah, yeah. don't necessarily go to that, um, that, that kind of thing, but they start producing works, um, together in collaboration or works inspired by each other. And some of them really go nowhere. Um, they're not exactly quite sure what they want to do together yet. So Wordsworth produces this sort of Shakespearean inflected play called the borderers. Um, Coleridge produces his own play, Osorio. They, they send both plays, you know, down to London to see if they can get produced. Both are rejected. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. Um, they, they have this idea to do some kind of joint project, but they're not quite sure what it is. Um, Coleridge has been working on this weird poem that kind of manufactures these strange archaisms called The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Um, most people, I think, have read the, the later version, the 1800 version. The 1798 version is... It, it's... It, I believe it takes Spencer as its model. It, it has all these sort of like fake medievalisms and it's, mm-hmm. it's really kind of arcane and, and, and a little tough to get your head around. Um, he smooths it over and smooths over some of the, the, the metrics for the later version. But, um, he's working on this and they kind of decide, you know what? This would be a great start for a volume. And they start cobbling together poems that they've, written previously <clears throat> and then putting those together and arranging them and rearranging them and they eventually come up with this <clears throat> this this thing called lyrical ballads um their their writing is inspired by each other and wordsworth really has this burst of productivity with these lyrics that add narrative to them so he'll have yeah. these tiny little brief things and then he starts experimenting with these longer narrative poems um, that seem to present a simple story, but kind of go in weird directions. All right. So, uh, they write an advertisement. They're, they're going to take this and, and this, this bunch of poems. They're going to take it and get it to a publisher and they write an advertisement for it, sort of telling what it's supposed to be. And they openly sort of claim that it's, in opposition to much of the poetic taste of the time. So they're making these kind of revolutionary moves just in the advertisement for it, right? So they're opposing what they're doing with artificiality and ornament. So they're making this claim towards authenticity. Uh, Wordsworth is going to really articulate that and really expound on that in the later edition when he writes the preface Mm -hmm. to it. But they're making this claim towards authenticity, either of self or of representation or of language or of verse. And they're setting it in opposition to the kind of metrics that had been sort of hailed as aristocratic. Um, yeah. The, the, when you get into it, the, the book is not like the poems in the book are not. <laughs> Okay, no one's calling for the death of George III. And um, <laughs> it, it's not openly 
class warfare or anything like that, but that didn't matter because when it was published, reviewers would read it based on the metrics and based on the advertisement as a piece of radical writing. So Robert Southey, um, Bob Southey, uh, (laughs) Coleridge's uh, nemesis there, wrote uh, a review sort of excoriating it for its radical politics just based, based on the ballad form alone. Does that make sense? <laughs> That's insane. Well, not That's really. Marvelous. <laughs> not really. Because I mean, it, it, it sounds insane, but you're right. I mean, you, you've made the case for why that would be salacious or some or, or seditious. Yeah. Well, well, the same thing happens again and again. Um, there's a, 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 a cultural politics to form. You, you can look at. Um, you can look at American poetry in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s. Uh, this is sort of like the old break narrative about the, the shift from modern to postmodern poetry. There's this narrative that says, um, modern poetry is ironic, distanced, formal, and, um, I guess kind of like cold and emotionless and detached. Whereas postmodern poetry is immersed in the moment, um, personal uh what is it accepting of ontological epistemological change and it emphasizes free verse and free verse is necessarily a democratic gesture well hold on there um there are plenty of modernist poets who are implementing free verse in these aristocratic ways. And there are plenty mm-hmm. of, you know, metrically tight postmodern writers. And I'm meaning writers after 1945 uh, who are investigated by the FBI. I mean, yeah, okay. Richard Wilbur is one of the most um, looking at him in, in 2020. He seems just absolutely stayed. His, his yeah. metrics are, are extraordinarily polished and, and, you know, he's the epitome of the well-wrought urn. And he was one of the more radical, um, you know, in, in his life. He, he, he was really pretty radical and open in his, uh, hostility towards the Vietnam War, his embrace of the civil rights movement. There literally was an FBI file on this guy. Um, yeah. So anyway, th- this just goes to show that these kind of cultural readings are, are often, you know, skewed, but they're there. And so there's this way of reading form as necessarily political or, or what have you, right? Whatever the form is, it always, you know, operates in this cultural mode. So, you know, just the forms that they're using alone, uh, mark them as, as, you know, radicals, even though, Wordsworth is increasingly moving against the revolution as it turns to, you know, reign of terror and mob violence, even though Coleridge is also extraordinarily hesitant towards the revolution in its embrace of mob violence and its rejection of theology in favor of atheism. Um, yeah. Yeah. Coleridge is the Unitarian minister. He has his metaphysics and you don't fuck with his metaphysics. All right. So, well, you think you think he would have been like all right with the cult of the supreme being being Unitarian? (laughs) I suppose not, though. Yeah, you know, you got to have Jesus in there somewhere. All right, it wasn't done to his taste. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So anyway, um, the the reviews when it comes out, 
the the reviews are mixed. Um, it, it wasn't necessarily panned. You you know, a, a couple of people did pan it. A couple of people did like it, but it was sort of up in the air. Um, now, what happens is they put it out there, then Courage and Wordsworth and their households fuck off to Germany so that Courage can go study Kant. Um, <laughs> uh, Wordsworth and his sister have a horrible time of it. Uh, you know, Courage goes to the big cities to attend the universities and, you know, be a heady intellectual. And Wordsworth and his sister kind of end up in the countryside, not really knowing the language going ah. so they go back early and um there's this whole kerfuffle with the copyright for for lyrical ballads it turns out that the um editor that they'd sold it to had given it to someone else and just by chance it lands back in wordsworth's hands um, the, it, it was this whole mess. And if you want to get the background on it, um, read Michael Garner and Dahlia Porter's, um, edition of the Lyrical Ballads put out by Broadview. That's, that's actually the one we're going to be using for this project, or, or at least I'm going to be using for this project because it's, it's kind of like the, <laughs> it, it, it's edited with history in mind. Let's put it that way. And it has yeah. a, a ton of contextual information to it. Anyway. So, um, Wordsworth gets the, the copyright back and he realizes that even though the reviews were mixed, this thing is kind of sort of selling. It, it's, it's starting to get a readership. So what he wants to do is add some stuff to it, put a preface on it to, to, I guess, justify certain moves that they make and guide the reader into understanding what the project is and reshuffle a few things. Now, they'd started with a bold move. They'd put Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner first. So <laughs> you've got this really heady, bizarre, gothic, supernatural narrative in this kind yeah. of mock archaic northern english verse um what the fuck were they thinking that's like that's, that's amazing that, that's sort of like starting the album with sister ray you know um <laughs> anyway so they 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 or wordsworth decide to mix it up and so they put some of the harder poems or some of the more difficult poems sort of later they revise the ancient mariner so it's not as tough to read and coleridge provides all these weird glosses um they they shift things around they add some things um but they put it back out there and slowly but surely it begins to to get this readership and sort of change certain kinds of expectations. Now, the thing is, um, before, before Ginsburg published Howl, he'd already put a bunch of poems out there. Before Ginsburg published Howl, you already had a, a pretty strong output from what eventually become known as the Beats. Yeah. Before Ginsburg published Howl, there was tons of literary moving and shaking already going on. 
there is tons of stuff like that already in the air. So Hal did not create the beat moment. Hal mm-hmm. did not make it happen. Um, and Hal did not come out of nowhere. But Hal is the one that coalesced the scene. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. Absolutely. So lyrical ballads, I mean, to, to, to sort of draw the, the, the parallel, lyrical ballads did not come out of nowhere. In fact, it was drawing on genres and verse forms that were already in circulation. You had those rural poets, you had the sentimental poets picking up on the rural poets, using some of their innovations, and then sort of mixing it together with this interest on, in affect. What Wordsworth and Coleridge added, and even the negative reviews noted this, what they added to the kind of, you know, descriptions of the English countryside and this emphasis on rural life, they added German metaphysics. So all throughout the lyrical ballads, you have this emphasis on... Here we go. My favorite thing, ontological epistemological crisis. And <laughs> yes, indeed. Our old friend joins us again. Well, yeah. It started in Milton and coalesces here, right? Um, they add it to all of the stuff that was already in the air. And there were tons of poems already in circulation about um, poor country people who died in the snow because they were sick and starving. There's all kinds of poems in circulation about, you know, mad country beggars. There's all kinds of poems in circulation about poor widowed women who waste away, right? Um, in fact, a lot of these poets who are, are, you know, in circulation, they're, they're tagging each other and they're writing inspired by each other in print. What Wordsworth and Coleridge add to that is German metaphysics. They add this kind of burgeoning transcendentalism to a lot of what they're doing and they transform the poem from being just merely descriptive this is my larger argument. They transform it from just being merely descriptive to a kind of virtual reality of mm-hmm. the experience itself. And what at least Wordsworth seems to think is that the aesthetic act of reading the poem, the the sort of virtual reality of the poem can perform a kind of therapy. It, it's hmm. it can heal certain of the existential alienations that you might feel from this disorienting social and political time. So part of what it is is a way of using the poem to realign you with the material and the social world. Um, that's something that I think gets lost a lot of times, but when we do read Tintern Abbey, I'll show you how he thinks it can overcome certain kinds of social alienation. It can get you back into sync with those around you. Um, so that's what they really sort of add to this. It's all really, really, really weird, but that's kind of what makes it fun. And 
it's it's really that sort of metaphysical tweak that I think the later poets, you know, that that later wave of romantics pick up on and, and run away with. And and it's that tweak that I think is still with us in, you know, I'm not going to say in writing in English because I can't speak with confidence <laughs> about the scene outside of America. But America is still, you know, whatever school or philosophy or whatever thing it is that American poetry is doing, it's still operating in a romantic mode because it's Mm -hmm. still whatever it claims to be. It's still in some way, shape or form trying to address these ontological epistemological crises and turn the poem into this hopeful therapeutic moments of psychic healing. Um, that's a very, very broad statement and I can kind of back it up, but that seems to be the, the, that seems to be the root of, of so much American poetry. Um, yeah. In the current moment, all throughout the 20th century. Anyway, that's why I think this volume has importance. It's a watershed moment. It's an articulation. It's, it's a coalescence. It, it, brings the strands together and sort of makes them work for a couple of generations. Now, where Wordsworth ends up um, is rich and famous and high arch conservative. Um, mm. he, he has a long poetic dotage and he becomes more and more the arch conservative and you can kind of see the breaking point when his brother he had one of his brothers was a sailor who who drowned and that's when he sort of starts putting out these poems that are all about god and country and literally about god and country <laughs> yeah, um, yeah do your duty by god and country i mean, it, would, it would make tennyson blush um yeah but uh you know he he has this you know severe stern break and just becomes the old man of letters basically living off his his youth um he he works on this long autobiographical poem the prelude which i think sits for several years uh it's published posthumously and it's there, there are several versions of it he kept going back and revising sections of it um, because he wanted to write this, you know, larger autobiography, but he only got through the prelude. He only got through the early stuff. Um, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a major aesthetic document because he tries to chart out, you know, what he calls these spots of time, um, that, that sort of operate in this Proustian way. They, they, they give you intimations of the beyond in, in this weird way. Um, but anyway, he becomes the arch conservative and lives this long old life, becomes the poet laureate. And, you know, it was kind of just, um, you know, the figurehead in a lot of ways. And yeah. Coleridge, you know, this is a sadder tale. Um, Coleridge accidentally gets hooked on opium. And you have to remember in the 18th, 19th century, you know, you stub your toe, you go to the drugstore, they give you laudanum, which is mm-hmm. opium in a tincture of alcohol so that you get a nice buzz as you, you know, sort of, um, nod off. 
Um, right. So you stub your toe, they give you opium. You have a toothache, they give you opium. You have a stomachache, they give you opium. Um, <laughs> Coleridge yeah. had, had, I think it was ulcers, but he had stomach ailments. And so he started taking opium to treat the stomach ailments. And that became a full-fledged addiction. And so much of his life became about managing the addiction. And, you know, if you're nodding off all the time, you can't really write the poetic masterwork that was promised by your youth. So he yeah. turns to literary criticism and autobiography. He writes this weird combination, literary criticism, autobiography, called um, uh, autobi- Autobiographia Literaria. And it's, I've read excerpts from it. It's, it's wild, but it, it combines, you know, memoir and literary criticism. But he basically ends arguing that England needs an official office of basically priests. And so he thinks that there should be, okay, there should be a king, but it really should be this clerisy that's ruling the day. Um, really goes off the deep end and is just kind of wild <laughs> and nuts. And so he's, he's still a personality. He's still kind of a raconteur, but he's kind of like this broken personality. He, he never lived up to what he thought was his, you know, potential. And he never lived up to the potential that a lot of people saw in him. Um, so. Coleridge and Wordsworth, they, they coalesced a lot of this material. They, they brought it to a head. Um, they sort of put this thing out there and then, you know, in old age became the figureheads of everything that was wrong <laughs> in, uh, for the, their younger contemporaries, everything that was wrong in poetry. Um, Shelley maintains, you know, his radical stance. Byron, um, sends his barbs off to them, uh, both for their conservatism and for, you know, what he sees in, in Coleridge is fatuous metaphysics that, you know, does nothing. And what he sees in Wordsworth is basically sexual repression. Um, and he, he's probably not wrong. Um, Keats drew from them, you know, whatever he could, but Keats is, you know, he's off in his own world. He's, he's on his own damn planet, man. And as far as things go and as far as, you know, the, the way aesthetics develop in in the UK after the Romantics, Keats almost seems Victorian. I mean, he comes so late anyway that he really kind of anticipates some of what the Victorians are doing. Um, and Blake, nobody reads Blake until the later part of the 19th century. And then they're reading Innocence and Experience as children's poetry. And I don't yeah. think it's until the <laughs> twentieth strange. Yeah, I don't think it's till the twentieth century when people start to look at his apocalyptic stuff and say, "Hang on, <laughs> this guy's fucked." Um, Blake was out there, dude. Uh, so anyway, um, you know, they they exemplify a lot of what their younger contemporaries, you know, hate about the age, but they were the ones who kind of brought it to a head. Um, so I guess that gets us to the book itself, which we're not going to discuss tonight. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But hey, but that's leave them wanting more. That's the old, mm-hmm. that's the, the showbiz, 
uh, 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 aphorism, right? Yeah. So anyway, what our plan is, is, you know, this is the, the sort of historical background on all this. And I, I hope we've done a reasonable job in sort of giving context for the production of this thing and what it meant at the time and then what it comes to mean afterwards. You know, a- afterwards, this mm-hmm. is kind of the Annus Mirabilis. This is the, the wonderful summer. Um, but at the time, it was just this weird kind of cobbled together thing that they were trying to use to articulate their poetic and metaphysical stands. All right. So what we're going to do next time is read the 1798 version, the, the, the first version that was put out with the advertisement that starts with the, uh, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And this is the original version of the rhyme of the ancient mariner, which is very different from the later version of the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And like I said, that's, that's a bold move, dude. That's (laughs) why you would start with this is kind of out there, but I mean, this is, this is throwing the go outlet down and then we'll, we'll look at, you know, what they're doing with various verse forms and what they're doing with the subject matter and think through, you know, how it's both similar to and different from some of the other poems at the time. Yeah. So I guess that wraps up the context for the lyrical ballads. Uh, hope this was enlightening. And, um, you know, I hope my pronunciation of English place names and people was uh, acceptable if not appropriate, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm struggling here a little bit and, uh, I'm sure I will be corrected <laughs> anyway. Look, there's, there's no way we pronounced anything more incorrectly than Spinozzi. Okay. Right, so I think we're fine. <laughs> if, if Coleridge can fuck it up, I can fuck it up in any case. That's right. Um, so please, if you enjoy the show, rate and review on iTunes. And if you don't enjoy the show, I guess you haven't listened all the way to the end. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, um, you can come find us on Twitter. You can come find us on Facebook. Um, we'll we'll entertain any um, fascinating dialogue as long as it's peaceful and quiet and um, doesn't wish for the death of me and my family. Uh, yeah. So stay tuned and we'll come back to the lyrical ballads. <laughs>